When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's all these little satisfactory moments of solving the puzzle, whether it's the people in the breakfast nook who are solving the, the cipher or, you know, whether it's like finding these little pieces of evidence or the scene where they interview Arthur Lee Allen, which is so just masterclass of like acting and editing and staging and where to put the camera. And, you know, and then and and we're following we're, we're doing this with Graysmith and, and he's running around in the rain and writing things down on a napkin and we're we're in this experience and we're unlocking the clues and we're doing the game and the game has no end and the game will not let us win and the goddamn handwriting is going to (laughs) kick us every single time um so there is something sort of like like it's almost like edging (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why don't you define it for the listeners? I don't want to. It's like not orgasming. <laughs> Going to the edge, right. one might say. To the but precipice. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this movie is like two and a half Katie hours is blushing, of like edging. Is blushing so hard right now. It's, I've never seen you blush like this on a show before. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led like Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was the Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and LA Times, part-time lecturer at Chapman University, and the co-host of our monthly Miami Nice podcast, Katie Walsh. Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and follow and subscribe and review to the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow film lovers out there to find our obsessive cinematic deep dives. And I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with a weekly Roman Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as all the links to our merchandise with artwork from the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed are all in the show notes and the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to sit in the smoking section with Mr. Paul Avery are award-winning author, film critic, host of the terrific and insightful Watch With Jen podcast, my friend, Jen Johans. Zodiac screenwriter, James Vanderbilt, editor-at-large at RogerEbert.com, TV critic at Vulture, Matt Solazides, filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Ocean's 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, Brian Koppelman, senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields, and writer, actor, and one of the stars of this incredible ensemble Zodiac, Donald Logue. This is the 12th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Gemini, Part 2. In this sequence, we play third wheel to the most interesting first date and watch Paul Avery step out of the newsroom, into the limelight, and then straight back to the smoking section. Every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme, 
This episode shows that writing is on the wall for Robert Graysmith's relationships. And because I took my wife to arguably the worst date movie ever for our first movie date, I thought it would be only appropriate that I give the theme to the movie I took her to. So, this episode's theme is Blue Valentine. Screenwriter of Zodiac, James Vanderbilt, discussing how he and Fincher had perverse aspirations for this scene. It's sort of the worst first date you can imagine. He's super <laughs> late. He uh, says he's come from a gun range. He uh, and then and then says that his friend might be in mortal peril, and then uh, needs to borrow money from her to make a phone call to warn his friend that it might be in mortal peril. So it's sort of this, and she's kind of interested by that you know um i do remember one of one of fincher's favorite jokes is in that scene where um uh, uh jake says uh, you know paul avery i work near him as though the idea <laughs> the actual physical geog- geographical uh proximity to his desk is like I, it's not that i work with him i work near him so i always sort of love that uh that piece of it but yeah she's she's you know she's sort of normalcy right she represents yes what a normal person would do, what a normal life is. And I, and I think we sort of worked really hard to make her not be um, shrewish about it. You know, she's yeah. indulgent and she'll allow him to do this stuff. But once he starts, you know, letting Herb Kane write about it and once he starts going on the news about it, she's like, you know, we have kids, dude. Like, what are you doing? And now let's get to the scene. Taking wide, awkward, stilt-like steps to avoid puddles, Jack Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith wearing a newspaper draped over his head rushes into a fancy restaurant in the rain. Sodden and still wearing clothes from a day working and accompanying Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery to a gun range, Graysmith fumbles his way into a restaurant and to the disapproving cashier and greeter. They each give off the vibe of a husband and wife and disapproving parents pointing this hapless suitor to his date. There's a working class edge to this restaurant, punching above its weight, delivering a prologue to the upper class corporate eateries we saw packed from lunch to late in the pre-COVID world. Graysmith, as if determined to start ticking every red flag on the blind date bingo, even asked the maitre d' to point him towards his date. As much for Melanie as for Graysmith, she supportively obliges. Graysmith looks towards Chloe Sevigny's Melanie, a picture of matter-of-fact yet luminous 70s beauty. Sevigny to this point typified a post-Tarantino, unabashedly American indie actor, starring in raw, insular performances in Boys Don't Cry, American Psycho, Dogville, The Brown Bunny, and Shattered Glass, to name a few. Those roles required risk, bravery, And here is Melanie underneath the turtleneck sweater and large spectacles is a kind of repressed adventurousness. Here's James Vanderbilt with a quick aside about his personal connection to Miss Sevigny. Yeah, and the the fun thing too about Chloe, well, first of all, A, the funny thing is is 
Chloe and I actually did children's theater together when we were kids. So like, she grew up in the town next to me. So oh it was super amazing that she got cast in this. You know what I mean? Um, so that was that was just fun to see her again. Um, but then also, especially around this time, like she was like indie movie darling. She was doing all these sort of risky things, and then she comes in and plays sort of the most straight laced, normal like like you know character in the whole movie and she knocks it out of the park so she yeah. she gives the kind of the gravity to to understanding and also humanizes i think graysmith who is you know space cadet in a lot of ways like <laughs> you know um it, it brings some normalcy into his life and you kind of go well if she likes him you know he can't be all bad you must be melanie which would make you robert i would glenn has told me a lot lots about you um, and you have wine, great. I do. How late am I? It's just a few minutes away. I just got here myself. Traffic, bumper to bumper. Is that the gun range? Glenna said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at a gun range? Reading. Is it, um, get some more, you need some more napkins. Oh, so you work with, uh, Glennis. For her, actually. For her? Oh, well. My children are terrified of Glennis. Me too. Oh. So the gun range. Oh, we were, uh, we're, I'm working on, do you know the Zodiac? Yeah. I'm working with, do you know who Paul Avery is? Sounds kind of familiar. He's the writer that the Zodiac threatened. Oh yeah, I saw that on TV. Well, I work near him and, and he's going down tonight to track an, an anonymous tipster down in Riverside. Where is Riverside? It's near LA. Oh, wow. I don't think Paul knows that it's that far away. Sounds kind of dangerous. Yeah. How do you mean? Well, you said it was an anonymous tip, right? Yeah. So it could be an ambush. It could be the Zodiac. Oh. Don't you think it's kind of <laughs> stupid? Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul has a gun. It's beautiful confounding foible after foible I've heard so much about you and yet Graysmith immediately miffs her job the lack of polish on Graysmith has a disarming quality on Melanie the gun range the involvement in the Zodiac case I sit near Paul Avery the location of Riverside and the concept of a nighttime meeting with a stranger all of these are ringing alarm bells for Melanie and she demonstrates that those cues are threats to Graysmith Threats that up until this point he'd never considered. Paul has a gun. So, you know what's good here? Um, I've never been here before. <laughs> uh, the pasta, spaghetti. Are you ready to order yet? Yeah, I'll have the penne vodka, but could you do it in a cream sauce? Of course. Seven Years Melanie looks at the impact of her danger assessment in Graysmith's lack of engagement with the menu, the lack of assertion on the meal, even the deferral to say that they need more time to order from the imposing and rotund belly of the faceless waiter. Another great, beautiful touch that signals that the wait staff maintain a sort of Frank Diner-style quality, delivery to their requests of their order rather than hot cuisine. Graysmith is blinded by his game perception stakes of this case. The stakes 
a life and death. Maybe give us another minute. Do you have any change? Oh, wait, no, wait, hold on. No, but that's a penny. Um, Do you have to make a phone call? Yeah, you know, when you were saying that the, that the Zodiac... When you said it was dangerous, I just thought that it, it is dangerous, and it's... Stupid? Stupid, and I just thought that I should call his wife and just see if she's heard from him. Well, I have some change. Here's writer and author, Jan Johans, on how women are so integral to sensing the danger of the Zodiac. Fincher and Vanderbilt and everyone working on the movie kind of knew that women were probably the like their first victim. And we sense this danger. Like we're the first victim of the Zodiac. Yes. We're the ones that sense this danger and also try to, you know, placate or, you know, have the guy we're with stay alive, like don't get out of the car or, hey, this guy is coming towards us. Just like the scene that I kind of selected for today, the one I love the first date, is it takes an outsider to kind of evaluate these men's obsession. Like, <laughs> wait, he's going down to Riverside, Paul Avery, for an anonymous tip. Like, he could just be walking into a trap. It could be the Zodiac, like he could be dead. And it's like it never occurred to Eagle Scout Jake Gyllenhaal's <laughs> character, Robert Graysmith. Like, like he's trying to kind of disengage to like go through with this. I'm assuming it was a blind date because it didn't seem like he knew what she looked like. Nah. And, um, but then he's like looking for change. Like, oh God, I got to call his wife. Like, you know, this might be a thing. And so I love that it takes a woman and it also takes an outsider looking in, <laughs> just like we talked about our tunnel vision and it, we need somebody, like one of my friends would text me occasionally, like, you know, are you still working on your paper? Like, did you even eat? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I did. What did you have? Oh, wait, you know, that was yesterday or yes. <laughs> so it does take an outsider, but I like that in this movie, they're mostly females. Again, it's Arthur Lee Allen's sister-in-law who mm. confirms the weird spelling of Christmas. She saw him with the ciphers. She's the one that cornered the shrink to break confidentiality to tell him that, yeah, this guy probably is capable of killing someone. So they're kind of the MVPs behind the scenes here of sensing danger and helping figure things out before it's too late. But unfortunately, like a police officer told me at one time, it's like, you can do everything right, but if somebody is determined to hurt you, they will hurt you. If she's heard from him. Well, I have some change. She said she'd call when she heard from her. Good. Yeah. Uh, Melanie, I should really, I should go home and wait for the call. This is some sleazy plan to get me to go home with you. What? No. I'll get the food to go. Hello? 
Here's Brian Coppelman with a few words about just the incredible performance all round by Chloe Sevigny Zodiac. And then onto a conversation with Matt Zolazites about this scene's distillation of living life in the 1970s. The only thing you can do, which is funny because Fincher's always considered cold as a filmmaker. But right there in the middle of the movie is Chloe Savini, who's the warmest, most inviting, uh, ready to uh, to uh, be loved person. And Graysmith can't choose her and he can't choose that version of a humble happiness. He has to choose a kind of glory that the Zodiac wants and Tosky wants and Paul wants and, and everybody wants. One of the other things, one of the many things I love about Zodiac is its portrait of life in the 70s. And, and what makes it so remarkable for me is that like Mad Men, and uh, uh, really a kind of a bare handful of, of period pieces made in recent years. It goes beyond like, here's somebody in a wide lapel shirt and there's disco music playing, you know? Like that's kind of like the, the lazy person's way to set something quote unquote in period. And they really thought about like, how did people live back then? Like there's as much thought put into this movie, which is set in the, before, you know, right before, Altamont and and the you know if 67 was the summer of love 69 was the summer of shit like that was when everything turned to shit yeah, it is. and uh, yeah and then it continues through it continues through the 70s it just keeps going the bodies keep piling up they they're unable to catch this guy or even identify him um, and uh, crime detection was different back then and so was life generally and to me this scene in the restaurant distills all that in quite a brilliant way. It does a lot of things. It's um, this this scene between Robert and Melanie is uh, really, really doing a lot of work. It's, it's, it's it, you know, for one thing, it, it, it captures what it was like to be alive in the 70s better than almost any single scene I think I've seen outside of a movie made in the 70s. Yes. You know, because, you know, the decor of the restaurant, the way the people are dressed, all that stuff is spot on. But more importantly, it's um, it captures that feeling of being exposed. You know, that's the thing is like there's a perception that uh, life is more dangerous now than ever before. And the world is a bigger, scarier place than ever before. But, you know, being in my early 50s now and ha having witnessed all of this change, I don't feel that way. Like, I feel like there may be more people in the world now, but I feel like it's a much smaller world than the one that I was a child in. Yes. Because, you know, in this in the 70s, there was no there were no smartphones. There were no uh, there was no Internet. Yeah. There were no even pagers, really, at that point. Like you you had there were the equivalent of pagers and there were the equivalent of, you know, cordless wireless phones. And we see like rich people in 60s movies have them in their limousines and stuff. But it wasn't <laughs> a thing that everybody had. And if you got lost, if you were going to see somebody and you you got lost, you couldn't GPS it, you had a map in your car. Sometimes if you lived in a big city, you had a book of maps in your car. You could buy a book of maps for Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Dallas, where I'm from. But there was even a company called Mapsco that put them out and you had to figure out how to 
how to flip the page from one grid to another as you were traveling without wrecking the car. Go down to E7, continue, uh, each side has continue on page 103. And like, if you were exactly. playing, navi I remember navigating for my, both my mom and my dad. And they're like, where do I go? Oh, wait, I've just got to flip to 103. You're turning the page and then you're like, it's like grid G3 or something. <laughs> yes, that's what it was. And, and or, you wrote the, or you wrote the directions down. Somebody told you on the phone how to get there and you wrote them down with a pencil or pen on a piece of paper and you better pray to God that you didn't lose that piece of paper because if you did you had to find a pay phone and you had to call that person and hope that they picked up yes so do you can yes. say I'm lost and I'm late how do I get to your house <laughs> do you have any idea how many times I've done that in my life <laughs> you know prior to about 2000 or something whenever I got my first flip phone it, it's also a lovely uh, meet cute. It's a really kind of lovely, ghastly meet cute. And, you know, it was perfect for me at the time because I was dating a woman who was really into true crime and, and, and thrillers and, and, you know, autopsy shows and things like that. So this was an absolutely perfect date film for the two of us. And it was very much like, you know, our first date was, you know, spent talking about um, a fair amount of it was about uh, murderers. You know, like that's, it's a topic, it's a thing you, I mean, it was a thing, like he was into it and it was like, you know, uh, um, you know, Ted Bundy and, and the Zodiac Killer and the Night Stalker and all of this stuff is, you know, it's interesting in the same way that like gangsters are interesting. You can have a, you know, certain types of people can have a conversation about, you know, the Gambino crew for like an hour, you know, it's just a thing, but, but you know, that's kind of what this turns into. And I love that it's like, you know, she ends up... <laughs> You know, there's something special between them when they're in that phone booth together and she's like, is this a creepy attempt to trap me into going back to your place? But she goes willingly. And yes. in fact, I think she would have been disappointed if he hadn't asked to go. Yes. And then, yeah. and then you see her sleeping on that couch and you're like, all right, these two are going to go the distance, you know? Um, it's great. And yet it's doing that work. It's doing that work of setting up this relationship, but it's also doing the yeoman's work of, of, uh, of, exposition and explication of you know what's next in this ongoing story of trying to identify and catch the zodiac but you know going back to my earlier point like that feeling of being exposed of being uh basically naked and powerless when you were in a public space not just in broad daylight you know i mean i just got through reading a book called the last stone which is about the abduction of two barely a uh, one pu barely pubescent girl and her kid sister from a mall in like 1975 and and you know how that case was finally solved and you know it's almost unthinkable that something like this could happen now but like in 1975 uh, like a creep could abduct a couple of kids from a shopping mall a shopping mall yeah and 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 maybe get away with it maybe get away with it because you know there were people who thought they might have maybe seen something weird going on but they they weren't really paying attention to it and they couldn't describe the car there, there was a lot of uh, disagreement about the car that was used things of that nature and you're really relying on memory and most places didn't have video surveillance now almost everybody does mm. and um and uh memories memories are are unreliable you know they they everybody knows that and and it was just easier it was easier to be a killer it was easier to be a criminal back then and like you know if you want proof all you got to do is look at procedurals now what's the first thing that happens when the cops come to visit a murder scene on law and order 
they ask about, you know, do you have cameras here? And they're like, yeah, but they're broken. Or yeah, <laughs> but the lens is dirty. Or yeah, but whatever. There's always a reason why they can't just go to the tape. Because if they could just go to the tape, episodes of Flow and Order would be like 14 <laughs> three min minutes long. Three, three minutes long. Oh, there's the guy. You, you wouldn't even need the order part. <laughs> you know? Um, and, that's, and that scene in Zodiac captures that so brilliantly. And it really, it somehow combines that feeling of there's a killer out there. We don't know what he looks like. And there's no way to find out. There's no way to find out. Like, you don't have the DNA evidence yet. You don't have the, uh, you don't have surveillance cameras everywhere. Everybody doesn't have their own personal camera in the form of an iPhone. Mm. Um, there are all of these things that we take for, kind of take for granted now that just were not a thing back then. And then on top of all that, um, you have the, the question mark of having to wait. Having to wait is a thing that we don't really have to do anymore uh, as much. You know, there are times when we have to wait for things, like when you're dealing with government or law, things just go at a certain speed that because that's how long it takes to do things. But it's not like, you know, now, like, if you want something, you can go on the Internet and order it and maybe it'll be there in two days or less, you know, if you get overnight. And and if you get lost going to somebody's house, you can text them and say, I'm late. And you don't really get nobody really gets lost anymore. Never. And there have been times where like my phone is dead or I left it at home and I get lost and I and I and I'm like walking in New York and I'm like, excuse me, how do you get to such and such a place? And I can't remember the last time somebody said you walk up this street three blocks and you make a left and then you go another two blocks and you make a right. That's not how people give directions anymore. They take out their phone. Yes. They take, and, and the first question somebody asks if you're like, do you know how to get to such and such a place? I'm lost. Is they're like, don't you have a phone? It's a whole different world. Anything? You don't have to stay. Are you kidding? This is the most interesting date I've ever had. Robert. Yes? You sitting down? Yes. You're not going to believe this. And and the fact that, like, it didn't, it didn't occur to him that, that you know, that Avery is exposed in this, what is it, an office park or something. What's even more glaring is that Avery gets out of his car. He walks into a, or he walks through a, a gas station. But it's a dilapidated gas station that looks like something out of Terminator. He walks through. It really does look like, like I personally, like I don't like the best characters in movies, but I personally would not have gone there. No, no. Like, I would take one look at that and go, this looks like where the Zodiac killer would kill me. And I would stay in my car. Well, and also just the idea that you got to go, you got to go meet somebody at a certain place to get certain information. Like it's, you know, like it's the, like it's the parking garage scene and in, in the, all the president's men or something like that. Like, yes. you know, nowadays, um, you know, my first question as a reporter, if some, I can't remember the last time somebody said, I have very important information to you, but we have to meet in person so I can tell you. I mean, I don't normally report those sorts of stories for one thing, but also if they did say that, I would say, why don't you just tell me now we're on the phone? <laughs> yeah. You know, or can't you, 
text it to me? I mean, like, are you afraid of surveillance? Like, what's going on? I mean, there are reasons, obviously, why people would want to talk about this stuff face to face, but it's just not a com- it's not as common a thing. And 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 even storytelling is affected by that. Like, you know, uh, just watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, their characters are constantly. It's a Los Angeles show, but it's kind of like Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld was a New York show that was shot on location in Los Angeles, and so is Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes. Because of the way people are constantly dropping in on each other, running into each other on the street. It's not really an L.A. thing. And the way that it's a <laughs> New York thing. Yes. You know, like in certain neighborhoods of New York, like people in your profession, if there's a lot of you who live there, you are going to run into people all the time. But it's not like, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's so funny to me because they they basically kind of transplanted the customs of of New York City onto that, including like showing up at somebody's house. Like that's still a New York thing. Like if you live in a neighborhood to just go over to somebody's house. And I even sometimes would yell up into a window, like it's on the waterfront. You know, like, hey, Bill, you home? like that's a thing you would do in an East Coast city where it's very dense. And that's not a thing you would do out there. But, you know, all of these things are just like a huge culture shock when you're watching Zodiac. And it's funny to watch that with like, um, you know, somebody of my kids generation because yes. the first thing people ask is uh why didn't he just call or why you know why why can't he you know why can't he just call his friend and see if he's okay because you can't yeah you can't that's not a thing you can do you know and 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 this idea that his friend is out there exposed and could be killed and he would not know about it and there's no way to warn him that adds a whole level to the suspense that wouldn't be there if this were set in, you know, 2021. You wouldn't know. They might take days to find out that he was killed. Yeah. They might not even find the body. It's and there would be no evidence. You know, like now, like people often people think they've cased a place if they're going to commit a, a violent crime. And it turns out they forgot about something or they didn't know about something. They didn't know about a ring camera or they didn't count on, you know, the FedEx guy is is like you know, calling his bookie and he sees the thing happen and he stops talking to his bookie and he turns his phone around and takes some video and that's how you catch the guy. Yes. Like there's so many ways that you cannot get away with it. The dark twist, the hunted has become hunter. San Francisco Chronicle reporter and Zodiac target Paul Avery claims to have uncovered new information regarding the only unsolved homicide in Riverside County's history. A 1966 Southern California murder that Avery now believes was the Zodiac's first victim. What? I didn't call you about this. The Riverside Hang on. killer wrote to the press letters that I then took personally to the Office of Question Documents. And what did this expert tell you? What I knew in my gut, Ron, the handwriting matches Zodiac's. How do you get the evidence out of Riverside? He took it to show without telling us the son of a bitch. You know how bad this looks. Hey, how do we know that this, this lead is real? It's very real. You know how I know? Because I saw it on TV. Here's Jan Johans on women as the hidden MVPs of Zodiac. The women are kind of the MVPs of Zodiac, (laughs) but they're the hidden ones. Like they're not in the exciting duos that try to solve this, like the various cops and Avery and Graysmith, or then Graysmith and Toski, or they're not part of these duos, but they're interesting because they're the first to sense danger throughout the entire movie yes it i think it's because women know how scary men can be in the most literal sense 
and it's just in our DNA and it's, you know, history. But at the beginning of the <laughs> and movie, yeah. Everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everything else, yes. <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, it is Darlene who knows not to eat at the drive-in. Like we can see that something was bothering her. Yes. She knows to tell the kid she's with who is like, you know, fuck off and die, which is just hilarious. One, one of the greatest from Lee, Lee Norris really plays is. Mike Majot. It's one of the greatest like impotent lines ever said in cinema. The way he screeches, fuck off and die. It's so bad. Yes. It's like he's play acting what he yeah. thinks he's supposed to do, the masculine yes. role he's supposed to play. And she's the one that tells him, like, don't get out of the car. Okay, okay. Yep. And again, at the attack at the lake, it it's is the woman who Hel senses the danger. Hell James, yeah, playing Cecilia Shepard. She's unbelievable. She is. She is the one who knows how serious this strange, threatening man is. And the young, misguided, or the idealist she's with tries to reason with him but she knows right away they're fucked. I mean, before the guy even yeah. comes up to them. Um, and he's like, oh, honey, well, you know, it's a public park and kind of that thing that women get all the time. Like, no, you're being paranoid. Like to use an example from my own situation that I was referencing earlier with my health, when I first started to have some really weird symptoms, including like crazy tachycardia and shortness of breath, I'd go to the ER and they would look at my age and be like, she's 30. Honey, did your boyfriend break up with you? Like I literally was asked that like a couple times, right? By people like, did you get in a fight with your boyfriend? And it's like, bitch, no. I mean, there's a men asking me this. <laughs> and I only say bitch no, to men like that. So. Cause I saw it on TV. Dave. Dave, you know Mel Nikolai, he's working the case for justice. Good to see you again, Mel. All due respect, can someone explain to me why I'm reading about breaks in this case in the Chronicle instead of getting calls from you? We got screwed. Dave, come on. You do get your name in the paper a lot, people talk. I don't ever talk about him, an open investigation, period. Okay, Ken? Dave? Hey. Hi. Paul Avery. Can I catch a ride with you, gents? Not, not a good down? idea, Paul. You can make me take a cab or we're going to the same place. Before we play cleanup at Riverside with Mark Ruffalo's Dave Tosky and Donal Logue's Ken Nalo, here's Meg Shields on her perspective of Closive in you. The idea of someone risking it all and risking the safety of others in order to feel satisfaction, like personal satisfaction at yeah. having solved the riddle like Ray Smith kind of <laughs> it's very selfish everything he does yes which uh and this is a good segue to talk about an issue I do have with the film which is how it uses Chloe Sevigny um great because I think I think the film I mean here's the thing like Fincher Fincher is as you said a very smart man and in this film especially he treats his audience as being very intelligent and What's great about police movies and cabinet file cabinet movies like this is there are great ways to smuggle in exposition because we kind of, that's a part of how it works. So it never really feels like exposition and you never feel as if things are being 
explained to you. You feel like you're along for the ride. Yes. And the one kind of weak hinge on the door where it does feel like Fincher is like, shit, are they going to know? I should probably say it explicitly is with Chloe Sevigny, who's who plays uh, Graysmith's wife, uh, Melanie. And uh, their first date is really excellent because there's a lot of show don't tell about how he, I mean, it's the most anxious scene in the movie, in my opinion, when yeah. he shows up to the date and clearly his mind is not on the date. His mind is solving the Zodiac murders. <laughs> and, and, and also that his friend's life's in danger. And so it's like, I still went on a date, even though I think my friend might die. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the work being done in that scene shows us everything that gets told to us more explicitly, and in my opinion, lazily later. Mm. where you have scenes where Seveny says things like very like I'm not paraphrasing where she's like why are you doing this and I, I just it feels not insulting to your intelligence as a viewer but it does start to turn that character who again is a real life person into more of that kind of bummer wife archetype yes which which on the one hand I understand because you know I, I understand that she's there to underline the fact that you know Hall is uh, obsessive and ready to risk it all for a staring contest <laughs> but at the same time I don't know her explicitly kind of laying it out uh, is a little clunky in my opinion that's a good take from a first viewing and I don't think it's a wrong one because it's something that I've liked but I think part of the reason why I think she is incisive and has like really direct lines like that is because you get caught up in his obsession, forgetting that he's a real human being. Like in normal serial killer fiction or just like procedurals, you kind of get these cops who like go off and do stuff with their lives and like they can get obsessed, you know, even like Hall himself in say like prisoners, he's like a single dude. He's like back in town. He's from a big city, he comes back to the small town to investigate this case. He can stay up all night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, doesn't matter. And what I like about her character is at the beginning, she shows the the kind of like how enticing it might be to be dating someone who's like in the middle of this case. And it's exciting because it's San Francisco and it's great. But then when he has to be a grown up and lead a family, like she's got to parent him. I find her more like d d her, her relationship with him sort of devolves into like, I have to parent you because you're not parenting our children. You're not parenting your child. You're not here as an active participant. And the decay of his family that's happening in real time, like, I think it's like, it just speaks to tragedy to me. I never think of her as a bummer wife. I'm like, he's a bummer to live with. He's a bummer. No, sure. I, I think I think another way of saying or of being clear about what I meant is, uh, so he, like, when when he does lose her, right, for that that moment or in the, in the film where he she leaves a note and says, I've taken the kids, we're going to my mom's. He's upset for like a fraction of a second. And then he's like, oh, back to the crime, <laughs> which is like perfectly fine, right? Like that's that's the point is that he isn't thinking about the people in his life and he's too caught up in the obsessiveness of it all. Uh, I just find that everything she does that's explicit could be done a lot more powerfully if it was shown instead of told very explicitly where it's it feels like I'm being explained where it's like Fincher just popping up and going, he's going to lose his family because he's so obsessed. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I fucking know, David. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I like I'm. it just feels like not a waste of, of a 70, but just 
she does such good work that it was disappointing when she had her moments where she was exposition wife of being like, I'm here to tell you why my husband's humanity is slipping. Me, the woman in the movie. Like, she could have had a few she could have had a few moments of explaining and then by the time she was leaving her absence, like just the house being empty is enough. Because perfect. like all because like, yeah. all he's left with necessarily then uh, potentially is his gigantic corkboard, as we've talked about a couple of times, you know. Yeah, like I'm not saying I want more seventy as much as that is always, usually a good thing. I actually mm. think the story might be served by you know less seventy. Mm. You know what this needs? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit more seventy. <laughs> a little more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually think if she were, if 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 uh, some of the more explicit nature of some of her lines were walked back a bit, it would have been more powerful. Because I think David, David, that Fincher trusts us to, to, to you know, connect <laughs> I like that you call him David like he's in trouble. Yeah, I get it, David. Jesus. Yeah, it's very funny. Just become Alexis from Shit's Creek. <laughs> David. <laughs> Stop uh, using your your wife characters like that, David. <laughs> yeah, I think like Detective Tashi Station, which is now what I'm going to call him, is um, he doesn't he have a wife moment where he's like sad and listening to jazz and she's like on the phone with Jake Gyllenhaal and she's like, stop bothering my husband. You're obsessive. And we're like, again, we know, like, I don't know. I felt like a lot of the the wife characters in this film were could have been labeled concerned wife of, of obsessed area man number one. Sherry Jo Bates attended Riverside Community College. She studies in the library the night of October 30th, 1966. She leaves with an unidentified male at closing, 9 p.m. Her body's found the next morning in a parking lot, stabbed to death. A typewritten confession was sent to the Riverside Press Enterprise on November 29th, a month after Bates' murder. They ran it. I'm not sick, I am insane, but that will not stop the game. This letter should be published for all to read. He wants to be published, he calls it a game. I mean, this could be our boy. Six months later, the police, the girl's father, and the paper, they all received these. <sighs> Double postage, just like Zodiac. These are what Sherwood Morrow matched to the Zodiac letters? Hmm, these in the desktop, Don. This was found a couple of months later by a janitor in RCC storage. Sherwood got a handwriting match off wood? Who etches in their own handwriting? To be honest with you, our letters and your letters, I don't see it. How did Paul Avery get his hands on the exemplars? I gave them to him. We talked on a phone the other day for about an hour, and I told him you were going to be here. You, you told him we were meeting? Yeah. I also told him we don't think this is Zodiac. OK, wait a minute. You don't think this is Zodiac? We got a guy we like for it. We don't have enough to pin it on him yet, but we're pretty sure it's him. If you don't think this is Zodiac, then why give anything to Avery? I'm trying to cooperate. Oh, that's how you cooperate? By giving information to reporters? Look, I don't know about the handwriting, but Sherwood says it's a match, right? So let's just say that your guy did Sherry Joe. He types the confession, Zodiac reads it in the paper, and he writes a letter taking credit for it. Now, that's something he's done before. Look, now you have everything we have. But in my opinion, you guys came south for nothing. Prove gentlemen. Prove I don't care what he says. It still can be Z. Problem is, the entire state already thinks it is. Well, there's your press agent. Talk to him about it. Come peace. I don't want any trouble. Dave? Well, I don't want to talk to you right now, Paul. Just trying Not to do my now. job. Oh, oh, really? Well, now I can't do mine. 
We're already screwed up the amount of tips we got on this thing, and, and you've just freaked out the entire state. I've got Napa, Vallejo, and DOJ looking at me sideways, and Riverside's telling me I'm on a snipe hunt. Jesus, hey, Sherry Joe Bates was a gift. I gave that to you. You and Armstrong never would have found This may not be Zodiac. Does that matter to you? Does it matter what that Riverside may not be able to make a case against her suspect because of you? Tell it to Sherwood. I'm out here beating the bushes, trying to draw him out. We're in this together. Well, we're not in anything together, Paul, because I'm not interested in upping my circulation. Oh, boy. He wrote me. He threatened my life. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You gonna catch this fucking guy or not? Go fuck yourself. Happily. You should have called me, Paul. As we wrap up, the final word I'll leave to two men involved directly in the scene. First up, Donald Logue, who plays Ken Nalo, talking about how this scene was one of his very favorites on the film. And secondly, James Vanderbilt, the writer of Zodiac, talking about the importance of the friction between Paul Avery and Dave Tosky in this scene. I think my favorite moment in Zodiac was, and I don't mean to jump the gun, but there's a scene where we go down to Riverside, we fly down to Riverside and uh, Downey Jr.'s on the flight with us, Paul, right? And we're just, we're bummed that this reporter's with us and we don't want to talk to him. And we go into talk to the Riverside PD and there there's a desk and is the handwriting match, but it's an etching in a desk and all this stuff. And then um, Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. have this, have this confrontation in the parking lot out in front and i remember it was with, taken with, with the immortal with the immortal line hey bullet hey bullet when are you gonna fucking boom catch this guy? <laughs> it's just a mock drop and, the, and the, i remember and the and the um and the notepad you know yeah. and and mark i mark was sick that day like he had a fever and kind of like those great athletes like michael jordan with 103 degree fever porn and 38 points or something you know <laughs> But he was almost in tears and he's like, when, and he understood Fincher's style of working better as well as, or better than anyone else. And, but I remember him saying, when are we going to get this, man? When do you have it? And he goes, you know, I'll tell you when. And it was just so enthralling to watch these two guys at the top of their game throwing down like that. It was just, I mean, you know, it's like one of those things you like having a ringside seat for. It was so cool. And... Well, it was, I mean, the, the, we also, we found it extremely funny, you know, that the idea that, that, you know, Toski is someone who likes seeing his name in the paper, likes to talk to reporters, like cuts a, you know, sort of a dandy figure yes. um, and would be sort of accused, you know, side-eyed by other cops of like, hey, you're the guy who talks to reporters too much. Uh, and then deny it and then have Avery show up on the same flight. Like we just, the fact that that happened, <laughs> we thought was sort of so funny and delicious. And then we kind of leaned into the comedy of it. Yeah, um, we, got, we got screwed here. And then he's, and then-, then And he's right there. And he pokes his, he even like comes inside of frame. Hey guys, and you're like, oh God. He wants, can we share a cab? Like it's the, <laughs> you know, it's, and he's kind of fucking with him too. Cause he knows, he knows, he knows they're not really happy. I also do love that he is sitting in the last, he goes back to sit in the smoking section on the plane. Yeah. Um, uh, the, but the other thing, you know, if I'm remembering it right, we were really careful about um, Toski swearing. 
And Toski doesn't really curse very often in the movie at all because we knew we wanted him to say, when he said, go fuck yourself, Paul, that for Dave Toski to use good, you know, good Catholic boy Dave Toski to use that kind of language really meant something, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and that was about the worst thing he could say to you. Um, uh, yeah, so sort of weirdly we wanted to build to that. That concludes the 12th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Gemini, part two. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review, follow the show wherever you can to be the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough for as little as a dollar a month, you can find Unplugged Zodiac Sessions podcast exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon. The link to that is in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Thank you, The Duff. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle pins and stickers were designed by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. And if you want to help the show, you can buy them. Every little couple of bucks counts, whether you're a patron, whether you're buying some of our incredible merch with the awesome design of our logo from Brianna Ashby. It helps us to continue to produce these shows. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Good. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.